My guest today is Adam Tisan, and Adam is the CRO at Chargebee. Adam, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Adam, you're based in San Diego, I believe, at the moment. Grow up there, though. Can you tell me where you grew up and what that was like? Yeah, it's a little bit of a long story. It wasn't San Diego, so I, I'm an oil brat. So we grew up all over the place. I was actually born in Spain and we moved from there to Iran. I actually got kicked out of Iran when the Shah got overthrown, got evacuated. I actually moved to Abu Dhabi from there, spent some time in Brazil, did a hiatus in boarding school in the UK. And I, 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 I call my formative growing up years in, in Victoria on Vancouver Island. Wow. I have never met, I've never even heard the term oil brat. I've heard army brats before, never <laughs> oil brats. That's a new one. And you said Spain, not known for its oil fields. Now, but all the, all the back then, so that would have been early, what, early seventies, all the, all the oil guys that were working down in Africa based themselves out of the Canaries. Ah, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah that makes sense now. And Iran, do you remember being shifted out of Iran? I don't, you know, the old, my only memory of Iran is riding a tricycle down a hill into an iron gate and picking up a scar for the, for my troubles. Wow. Yeah. And then from there you went to, where was it you said next was UK? No, we went to Abu Dhabi from. Uh, Sorry, from Abu Dhabi. And then we yeah, yeah. Beg your pardon. I'm always curious as somebody who grew up in the same place for 21 years, what that's like and what sort of impact it has on who you are today. Yeah, a great question. You know, one for, fortunate, I think, to have had that those experiences at such a young age. And I, you know, I think it just provides a different perspective on the world, better or worse. You know, it's just a different viewpoint. And, you know, I, I you know sometimes talk to people like, you know, maybe yourselves that have kind of grew up in one place for 21 years and, you know, you're, you're constantly around family, friends, there's deep roots there like that. So, you know, the envious of that, but at the same time, you get other benefits of, you know, experiencing different cultures and ways of life. And I think it, it sticks with you, you know, I'm, you know, now traveling is, is still one of my passions. I love it. I'm fortunate to, to travel a lot for work and then get to work with, you know, different people from different places. And I think that diversity is, uh, is important. It's such a colorful part of the fabric of life and, you know, in, in personal and business. Does it mean you get bored easily? <laughs> not in this job, that's for sure. But no, not bored easily. I, you know, I think I've, you know, been also fortunate enough to live in some pretty nice places just before we moved down to San Diego. I've been here over 10 years. I was up in Vancouver and, uh, I probably wouldn't have left Vancouver for many places in the world, but there's a handful of cities that I would have gone to San Diego. Happened to be one of them. So just fortunate again to have, have lived in some pretty nice places. And when you were younger, was there any clues in growing up that you'd one day end up in sales? <laughs> I talk a lot, talk to anybody pretty much, which was my parents always said, but no, I, I don't think so. You know, I am, um, you know, I didn't, I, what, I, unconventional path, I think for me getting into business and sales, I, you know, when I finished high school in Victoria, I didn't, I didn't have a clear direction that I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, what, whatever path. So I actually went traveling and did, you know, what the, in the UK is pretty common to do a gap year in North America. It's not so common. You know, my one gap year turned into four years before I managed to get back to university. So 
Do you think it's one of those things you often see in people, though, who have moved around a lot as children, is that they get very good at building rapport quickly with people and making connections, which then when it comes to sales, it's obviously an advantage. Yeah. yeah. Favorite place you've lived? Favorite place I've lived? It's a good one. It's, uh, goes back, I think, you know, it's tough. Every place has got its own kind of uniqueness. And, you know, when I look like, when I look back and reflect on, on places, even going back to a place, it's, you know, it, it's never quite the same because it's a time and a place and the people that kind of make that experience when you were there. But we, uh, you know, we really enjoyed Vancouver. And I think that was just because it was a super interesting time in our lives. We we're, you know, I just finished university. We we're just kicking off a career. We were kind of, you know, young, free, had some disposable income living right downtown Vancouver. So yeah, that was, you know, that that's pretty high up there. So you've had quite the career in sales, I see. How did you get your first start? Yeah, you know, it was, so we were, li I was living in the UK. So I went to university in Manchester and I met my then girlfriend, now wife. And we decided that we were both ready for a change. I've been in the UK for a while. And I remember I was working for Mobile BP as part of, uh, part of my degree, did a year in industry. And there was a really sharp guy that, that came to work with us straight out of college. Super smart guy. And I remember hanging out with him. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go into investment banking or, you know, stockbroker. And he's like, you know, you got to play to your strengths, right? Like you're, you're going back to that kind of rapport building and just, you know, personal. He's like, you got to go in sales. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm not going in sales. And I actually did a little, a little stint between kind of leaving the finishing uni, leaving the UK and getting to Vancouver because we decided to go to Vancouver through an agency and it was a telemarketing job. So these guys were doing basically coupon books for supermarkets like an Asda or a Tesco, but it was filled with like offers from restaurants. And so there was two sales teams. One sales team worked in acquiring the supermarkets to do the coupon books for. And then there was the lower end of the sales that had to go call every restaurant in the UK to try and get them to participate in this coupon book. And so I was on the latter end of it being just through an agency and just banging phones out call. I mean, it was, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the harder, harder grinding sales jobs when you're calling restaurants and did it for about a month or two. And I remember the CEO called me into his office, really successful, very successful business. He's like, Hey, you should come join us, become a sales guy, go on the, you know, the larger sales team to go acquire the bigger customers. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't think sales is for me. And you know, I'm not sure it's the kind of, he was like, look, like, I mean, he was pointing to this Maserati outside and, you know, he was running a 20, 20 million pound business saying, that's all I do. I make phone calls. And that kind of stuck with me a little bit along with the advice from the guy from Mobile BP. And when I got to Vancouver, I just landed, you know, I looked at, there was a job, go sell software and travel around North America. And I didn't know anything about software or sales at that time. And was fortunate to get the job there. So I kind of fell into it a little bit. Who have you worked for who has, who you've learned the most from? Gosh, the, it's a, that's a long list, Paul, a long list. But you know, when I got my, when I got my first start, I think I was fortunate to, to work. It was a small software company called class software. And Ralph Turfus was the uh, CEO, Alex Barnettsman, which was a Scotsman. I was their president and I had a sales manager, Buzz Hemfield. And I think what I learned from those guys, even though there was a small company, it was, uh, the work ethic and effort needed to put in like they, there was, you know, back then. You showed up at 7.30, you were late, right? Like everybody was already there and like grinding it out. And, you know, nobody left at five. It was like seven, eight o'clock at night. And that was something that they'd instilled across the company, not just in sales, but 
you know, across the board. And, you know, the process of getting into that business was, you know, Ralph was an old Air Force IBM guy. So he had a, a 17Q. Before you talk to anybody, you had to do a 17Q. Your salesperson needed to get 13 out of 17 and engineers needed to get 15 out of 17. And it was, uh, it was a logic test. It wasn't an IQ test. Yeah. See, see what wrote that by me? You had to get a 17 cube. So the, the test was called the 17 Q. So it was 17 questions and it was a logic based test. So can you follow logically kind of patterns? And if you're a salesperson, you had to get 13 out of 17 and engineers had to get 15 out of 17. And that was the first thing that you did when you walked into interview with them. You didn't speak to anyone. You did that test and then you did a personality test. And if you got past those two, then you had your first interview. And so, the, you know, what I heard from them was, you know, you had a process and what ended up was on, on the other side was a lot of, you know, very like-minded, very, you know, intelligent, logically smart people. And it was just a, a great time. And I think, yeah, that, I think the work ethic that they instilled in me, like was, was something that I think carried me through it, especially in sales, right? Like I was, you know, they, they were the, you know, I, that was where I learned to, you know, I'm going to put five more calls in and send five more emails than the next person, because, you know, it's that fifth call that's going to get you kind of one step further. Mm. That's really interesting. Excuse me. <clears throat> You're talking about a process and you mentioned that from that process, you end up with like-minded people. Nowadays, there's a huge emphasis on diversity of thought, background, experience, culture, et cetera. Are they diametrically opposed? Can they coexist together? Mm. Yeah. Going, yeah. Yeah, I do. Actually, we, I, we, it's something that we got, so we got acquired by a company called Active and that's kind of the next chapter in, in the journey, but there was a big roaring debate at the time because Active was very much that kind of, you know, gunslinging startup out of California, freewheeling, whereas we were a much more mature business because we, Ralph had kind of been, had been around for a while. I mean, we had, you know, Lean Six Sigma, Black Belt, kind of Green Belt people driving process and you know, these guys down at Active were like, well, I don't even understand what that means. They were just kind of running and gunning at the time, you know, higher, you know, taking all sorts of VC money. And so there was a big debate at the time around kind of whether you keep this process or not. And eventually it got phased out of the business. But I, I don't think it, um, you know, in, in reflecting back, didn't exclude diversity, but what it ensured that there was a certain level and method of thinking because it was logic based and not IQ based that people stepped out of with. So, you know, you, there was a lot of, a lot of trust across the organization diversity. I mean, we were quite a diverse organization. We're at a 150 people. And so I don't think it excluded diversity. I just think it brought people in that just kind of were at a level, like there was a certain level that everybody was at that stepped through from a, you know, a, a logic based perspective and, and personality side based on the role, of course. Yeah. It sounds to me like it's also a process for allowing people in who maybe didn't have formal education, yeah, but were able to demonstrate a standard yeah. of thinking, yeah. which has got nothing to do really with diversity of thought. Yeah. That's actually spot on. I mean, I remember one of our best, you know, implementation guy, Barry was, uh, was a baker. He didn't spend all his life being a baker. And then he was implementing these enterprise software projects and he was mm. great at it. And so, yeah, it did. I think the diversity that it brought together was great because it was all, Hey, like if you can follow logic, then you're going to be successful in these roles. Where were you most at home in a tightly controlled process driven organization or a freewheeling? <laughs> great, great question. I, so I've done both. I've done both. I think when you get into sales, so 
I, I think there's a balance. I think you can over-process stuff, but I also think you can't run, you can't, well, let me put it a different way. At the very beginning, a couple people, blank slate, you're trying to figure things out. You're trying to get product market fit. You've got to experiment a lot. Like that kind of side, I enjoy that creativity side. I think, you know, having kind of joined businesses now at different stages, I think where I'm really good at, and I think this leans into your question is when you need to get to scale. So, when, and you can't scale organizations without process and methodology. And so I think what I enjoy is building those and, and getting to, you know, and getting to shape them and, and then watching that scale. I, I think that's like, you know, I joined a, a couple companies much earlier on where it was like, we didn't have Salesforce, you had to implement a CRM. We were developing the playbooks. We didn't know the pitch. And while that was fun, that's like my, you know, my, my core strengths are more around like, Hey, there's product market fit. Now we need to scale. Cause you know, I've taken, you know, teams from, you know, 10 to a hundred and, you know, you know, 15 million to a hundred million. That's really where I think my strengths are. Who inspires you? Yeah, great, great question, Paul. A few folks, you know, Elon Musk comes to mind for a couple of different reasons. One, just his intellect to identify kind of markets ripe for disruption, and then really the audacity and conviction to go take them on and win, mm. followed by the ability to run like three massive companies. So he, he's one that comes to mind. You know, others include folks like Satya Nadala at Microsoft. I really enjoyed his book that he wrote which was hit refresh. And I really enjoyed the uh, kind of how he approached the transformation, which was a massive transformation of Microsoft. And he did it through culture and empathy. And it kind of leads into this, you know, there's really a sea change when you think about the approach of leadership, but a uh, big tech, which really involves, you know, you know, authenticity, empathy, humility. When you think of companies like Google with Sundar Pichai, you know, Adobe's Naranyan, you know, it's just a different style of leadership that's taken the forefront now. And uh, I'm fortunate actually here at Chargebee to be working with similar leaders of similar ilk like that with our, you know, our co-founders, Raman and Krish, who really kind of lean into the empathy, humility approach and orient around the, the employees and, and customers. And so that's been a big influence, you know, really close to me and, you know, learnings for me over the last couple of years here at Chargebee. Mm. That seemed, that sounded like quite a diverse range of characters. There are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Elon Musk and Sundai Pichai are very, very different, but, you know, and different in like, you know, Elon's just, you know, again, our audacity, the intellect and, you know, what he's been, the foresight to be able to see the opportunity to disrupt an industry like the automotive side and the conviction to go all in like he did is incredible. And then you know, just the raw horsepower to be able to run at the level that he runs with the companies that he's running is just is impressive. You know, from a, uh, a leadership style, probably not as much as an influence as like, I think, like I mentioned, this kind of new genre of leaders that are stepping into the forefront. Because, you know, this kind of thing like humility and empathy wasn't part of the vernacular. If you go back to like the Steve Ballmer days of Microsoft, right? Like it was a very so it was on the opposite ends of the spectrum. So, and I think that's a good transformation in leadership style that's happening. I remember talking to a sales director five, six years ago, and his number one problem, he was struggling. This is a, an organization that would have been, had a strong track record in on-premise software. Yeah. And their strategy was cloud. And they were really struggling to get their salespeople to adapt and 
from your insight, having done that, why might you think that is? Would you agree with it, first of all, that it's a different type of animal who's successful selling cloud versus selling on-premise? And if so, what's different? Yeah, it, so, it, it, so it is a different animal. And like, like I said, we were doing this back in, you know, when Active bought it, it was 2004, 2005. And so we did a big migration where we actually were migrating a lot of our on-prem large clients over to SaaS. And uh, it, it is a different animal in the, it's a different value proposition that, that goes along with it, right? And so that, that's the, fir the first thing. One is just how the economics work as the, you know, as a business, like understanding that. And that's where it kind of, you know, when you asked me about that inspiration, like having that forethought that early on about how these, you know, how a SaaS business really multiplies and gets into this ARR mode. So Ooh. understanding the economics of, of the models is really important. And then, you know, you, we spent a bunch of time kind of retooling the sales team on, you know, the value proposition of what SaaS brings to the table and why, you know, it's better, whether it's, you know, the infrastructure saving costs, which, you know, again, back then people were like, well, I already have a bunch of infrastructure because I've invested on it because I've got everything is on-prem. So, you know, I think it was retooling and understanding the value proposition of what SaaS brings along. And once you know, once you can get into that, the, you know, it, the value is so much greater than, you know, we used to, you know, I think like we were doing big deployments. So we would deploy, you know, in the city of Toronto across, you know, a thousand users and, you know, a hundred different sites. And so we were talking to them about like just the infrastructure required to do an upgrade for an on-prem system across, a, you know, a, you know, a vast organization like theirs. To saying, look, that all goes away. Like you, all that, like to do, we used to have to plan an upgrade with those guys for like six months just to get an upgrade going. And they have to go to all these sites. And then all of a sudden, all that goes away. So once you can understand kind of how to build the business case around all the elements of where that value prop of SaaS is, it's, you know, it becomes a no brainer, but it takes some time to understand kind of what that value prop is and how to really, you know, translate that into quantifiable, you know, ROIs for businesses. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to talk to you about your transition from individual contributor to sales leader, what that was like for you, what surprised you about it? Yeah, it's, and I see it today when we take, you know, people from ind individual contributors to managers, you start not losing control of your own destiny is, is probably a, like not the quite way to to frame it, but all of a sudden the way, you know, getting results through people versus just kind of grabbing the bull by the horns yourself and driving results is, you know, is a really different motion. And so, you know, I was quite fortunate, I, you know, when I stepped in because just the business unit that I was in, I was still carrying a bag. So I was, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to step into a management role where I was carrying a bag, smaller team. But a lot of it, you know, and that forced me to kind of, you know, get into a lot more coaching, which I think is, you know, one of the critical success factors of a sales manager, you know, is, mm. is that. And so I, it took me a, a little bit of, I think the transition was all of a sudden you can't do it all yourself and you've got to figure out kind of how to get results through other people. And the first step in that process, and this is where kind of, you know, one of the key strengths of great sales managers is, you know, talent acquisition and development. If you that's the first and the foremost thing that you need to do. And, you know, I think that's, that was the big learning for me was like, you can't do it all yourself. It's not going to work. And, and once you, 
you know, I, I cringe sometimes now. And we just did this recently with, we had a really great sales guy over in, over in Amsterdam. And I, you know, and again, over in the U S we had this rock star pre-sales or sales, you know, sales consultant that worked with the sales team. And they were, you know, they had ambitions to move in and start mm. kind of taking on teams. And at first you cringe, but then you realize like, if there, if you can, if you can help develop those people to figure out how to amplify themselves, like you can go from one to a multiple of 10 and have this person's kind of capabilities, skill sets, and expertise multiplied if they can do it properly. So that's that multiplying effect. But yeah, I think that was the hardest thing when you're, you know, you're used to just jumping in and driving everything yourself, like understanding that actually that's not going to work. You have to figure out how to get everybody else as successful as you are. You mentioned the fact you were carrying a bag and had the challenge of coaching as well. How difficult is that when you've got a target and then, but you've also just got to stop, shift direction and help somebody else with theirs? Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think you, again, it's a mind shift as well, right? Because when, you know, I was uh, as an individual contributor, and this is what I tell most of my sales guys today, I was ruthlessly selfish with my time. If it wasn't about advancing a deal, had revenue tied to it or anything along those lines, wasn't interested like that. Just, I, that was like, if it wasn't about, you know, my time for prospecting, it was going to create deals. It was going to advance deals. It was anything to do with deals. Then I just didn't, I ignored it. I was ruthlessly selfish. And I think you have to be. And then as you start, so you have to change that mindset, but I, I think it's, um, you know, stepping in, if I look back on it, I think it's good. Cause you're, I think there's also a, and I believe this to this day, there's a, a kind of leading from the front concept where they're like, this guy is not just talking and telling me what I need to do. He's actually doing it right alongside me and closing deals. So I think it builds, you know, I think it builds some, some trust and confidence in, you know, what you're saying, because you're, you know, at the same time you're working with them on deals, you know, you're also closing your own deals, hopefully being successful at mm. it. And they get to see you doing that walk, you know, walking the talk, so to speak, as well as yeah. helping them mentoring, right? Yeah. From, from a leadership perspective, well, let me step back just a little bit. This is my assertion that process and methodologies, when it comes to what's important to being really good in sales, they play a role, but they're minor versus traits like discipline, the ruthlessness of being able to focus yeah. on a target and say no to things, assertiveness in that sense. From a sales leader's perspective, what would you say are the most important traits that if people don't have them, no amount of process, no amount of training, no amount of methodology is going to help them? Yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to what we were saying before. I, I think an eye for talent and being able to coach that talent is, is a, a unique skill set. And you see it, like, I mean, I'm a, I played a lot of sports. And so I use a lot of sports analogies, but you know, that, that ability to spot talent and develop talent is so unique as a sales manager that, you know, if you don't have that, that you're dead in the, not dead in the water, but you're going to struggle. You're going to have mediocre teams because if you can spot talent and it go, I think it goes back to your point, like a lot of people spend time hiring, hiring off a resume versus seeing you right, finding those innate traits that, you know, somebody that'll hustle, grind things out, like, and you can pick up kind of how they've done that. Like I, I used to recruiting from, from recruiters. So hiring sales folks that have been through recruiting firms, 
because the coaching and training that they get, like they grind, it's like make 150 calls. And, you know, those guys come in with already this, you know, this, you know, innate hustle and drive that you just, it's hard to, you know, hard to, hard to train people on, although you can get there and then you can kind of build in that methodology and process of what they should follow to make sure they do it. I think that's one. And then you've got it, you know, those, the sales managers, you know, that we hired today and the ones that say, Hey, I'm, and we just did this recently. Actually, it was a VP. He's like, well, I'm spending the first week just getting into the product and understanding the product. And we have a sandbox and you can play around. And I think that just curiosity to really understand kind of what it is that you're selling and the value prop to customers. I think those are all the ones that really kind of lead into to great sales managers. What would you say a key to your success is that would not be obvious to most people? key to my success that wouldn't be obvious. Great question. You know, I was talking to a, a mentor and coach of mine, Kareen, that I've known since back in the class days, actually. So she was uh, living in San Diego up until about a couple months ago. And we brought her in. She used to do a lot of the leadership development and training for, you know, leaders, junior executives, active. And I was talking to her just off the cuff. We actually went sailing. And I think authenticity, like, I think it's, you know, I think maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you kind of had to fit the mold, but I think people kind of val more value now just that authentic, authentic style. And so I think I've for, you know, maybe, maybe it was a little bit of a burden back in the day where I was, what you see is what you get. I'm pretty authentic. I don't change a lot when I kind of, you know, walk out of the office and go down to the pub and have a beer versus kind of sitting in the office. I, you know, and I think, you know, reflecting back, it, it probably caused me a couple bumps in the road along the way, but I think that's become kind of more valued as a leadership trade is just kind of thing. Things have gone on in the lines between kind of personal and business life of, of kind of change, right? Like, you know, you turn into somebody a hundred, you know, 180 degrees, totally different when you're in the office versus out of the office. I mean, that's kind of weird. Yeah. You mentioned a company you worked for and in the early days, and it sounded to me a little bit like the boiler room, where <laughs> it was numbers, behavior. How has that changed, and how has it changed for the better? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, I don't know if it was more boiler. I've ran boiler room sales orgs actually uh, five six years ago when I got into another company. We were doing kind of one call, one call close, like lead hot transfers over. That was definitely boiler room. This, what we were doing, you know, enterprise sales deals were a couple hundred thousand dollars and they were 12 to 18 month sales cycle. So back then it wasn't more boiler room. It was just the work ethic and expectation mm. of the effort in as results out kind of thing. But it, you know, is, uh, the, what's changed now is the, the amount of tools that you have available as a salesperson is incredible, you know, in the way you can you know, do outreach, like, you know, there's the big debate around cold calling is dead. Well, cold calling to me is not, you know, we talk about outbound and, you know, when I joined Chargebee, interestingly enough, the business two and a half years ago had been built hundred percent inbound. Nobody had picked up a phone and outbound it, and, which is incredible. So the, you know, the type of machinery that you need to build to create that demand generation and inbound lead flow. And then the structure that you put on is incredible. And so, but they wanted to scale and in order to scale and move up market, we needed to implement the outbound motion. And I think the sophistication between the orchestration of sales and marketing and, 
and the tools and the channels that are available are like draft, like, you know, I think back to what you called our boiler room days back at class. And it was like, you picked up the phone and called and you sent emails. Now there's this amazing orchestration of sales and marketing with account based uh, ABM or whatever you want to call it, where, you know, you've got marketing targeting ads out at these individuals and there's email campaigns going out and there's, you know, BDRs warming up leads and this orchestration that happened and it can go via, you know, it's LinkedIn, it's on Twitter, it's on, you know, I mean, we do stuff on Facebook. We don't really target folks on Facebook, but I just think that, you know, the opportunity to on outreach in the different channels and that orchestration is incredible. It's so way beyond what we were doing back in the day, which was literally picking up the phone and, you know, and banging out emails. Yeah. Is there a danger that you can go too far with that and you're turning reps into tech jockeys? Into what, sorry? So I just made that term up. <laughs> <laughs> tech jockeys? Is that what you said? Tech, like as in for the rep, they're more focused on the technology and their cadence than they are thinking about what's going to help a prospect get from step A to step B and getting into the psychology of the buyer that it's all about, you know, a, a message via LinkedIn, then an email followed up by an autumn. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah, I, odd I, I, in actually, I, I do yeah. know what you mean. Yeah, I, I think there is, uh, you know, it, horses for courses, so to speak, like in, in certain models, right? Like if I think about the inbound model, that tech jock is fine. Like there's an inbound lead flow coming through and there's a very orchestrated process and they get there. The When you start stepping into like an outbound motion, like I look at the most successful reps in our organization today, and this has always been the case, while we have this great kind of demand gen machinery and BDRs that are generating leads, they obsess over making sure that they can feed themselves. And to your point, the way they do that is not like, I'm going to set up an email cadence and send it to a hundred things. And it's going to, you know, they spend time researching the organization, understanding the strategy, where are their pain points? What are they trying to achieve? How does our, you know, does our solution add value to what they're, you know, trying to do at this point in time? Who are the people? And, you know, I see these, the, the personalized outreach and emails, you know, wherever it's going over text or if it's going over email or it's a call are incredible. I mean, you know, I can name three or four different people and they send me samples of what they send out. And I was like, if I got that, I'd absolutely respond because you're speaking to exactly where I am on my journey, some of the pain points, and then you're throwing some humor in there. Like, you know, we've got one guy that's got probably one of the best mustaches in, in Europe. And yeah, it just the, that play and personalization, that goes beyond the uh, the tech jockey role yeah. for the people that are successful. But they yeah. that's time and effort, right? No, absolutely. And it reminds me actually of years ago, it was a guy, he was a Dutch guy and he had this really long name, like about 10 syllables long. <laughs> and he'd call up prospective customers and he'd say, hi, my name is Peter Vanden, right? And, it'd be... <laughs> and he'd get to the end of his name and he says, please don't ask me to spell it. It took me three years just to learn how to say it. And it connected with people with a little bit of self-deprecating humor and personality. And if you can do that, in email as well, or through pictures. I see some people often use email and right. maybe some gift or picture can really work. But if you have a few people who can do that, I don't know that that's the norm. Certainly from what I see, 
and I see a lot of same old kind of, this is who we are, leading provider of right. type emails. So you're doing something right if you've got a few people who can do that and who can teach others as well and That's set right. a benchmark for it. Because it's funny, it's actually, cold calling is a, is, is a real skill that a lot yeah. of people don't take time to master for sure. Emails is also an incredible skill to be able to, you know, to, that of a copywriter, to be able to boil something down and catch somebody's attention in a couple of sentences. It was like, I think it was Mark Twain who said when he was writing to a friend, forgive the long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. It, it is, a, it is an incredible skill. And those who can do it are what they're waiting gold for. Change topic a little bit. Imagine for a moment you are financially independent in that you don't need to ever work again. In fact, you can't work again in a commercial way. What would you do with your time? You're retired, essentially. Yeah, great question. I'd try and figure out how to actually play a decent round of golf would probably be the, the first step. But I, you know, I'd still, I, th I actually thought about this one a, a little bit. So, you know, definitely, I, I think, um, you know, love sports. So, uh, you know, I'd find a, a pickup footy game that I could play and, uh, you know, probably try and figure out how to beat my wife at tennis and play some golf. But I think beyond that, I, I traveling has obviously always been a passion. I love to, I like working with organizations. So I've been fortunate enough in this capacity to do some advisory work with smaller companies and, you know, I, I, figuring out that, uh, that puzzle at the very beginning, going back to kind of what we were talking about, like, Hey, they've got product market fit. They've, you know, starting to get to this eight to 10 million in revenue. And now they're like, wow, how do I, how do you start scaling? You know, I'd love to stay in some kind of capacity where you're helping, helping, you know, folks, teams like that and companies and founders like that, figure out that, that piece of the journey, because watching, yeah. you know, watching once that instrumentation gets put in place and then watching it go incredible. And it's such a, it's such a rush for everybody. There's so much, you know, enthusiasm and drive when things are just kind of that flywheels really spinning. It's yeah, it's pretty cool. You mentioned travel as something that, that but you're both. What, two questions. One is, what place have you been to that you have enjoyed the most, that meant the most to you? Mm. Meant the most to me. Doesn't have to be a favorite place, but some place that maybe left an imprint or, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, this was a long time ago. I love Asia. And, uh, you know, I think that the time I was traveling around uh, Thailand, was, uh, was incredible. And it was kind of backpacking. So you can tell how long ago that was, but you know, I think about that experience and even now I'd love to take the, the family through there. I think just that the people are so, so incredible. The food's incredible. The, just the whole country down in the islands and the diving around the islands and then up in the, in Chiang Mai in the North. And uh, so Thailand was cool, but you know, right now we've, my brother actually lives in Portugal and I've got a real you know, if Spain, Portugal, that kind of South Med vibe is, you know, is pretty cool. Kind of, they've got, they've really got a, I think I would struggle to do business there, you know, just being, you know, so, so ingrained in the North American kind of way of doing business. I think doing business there would be tougher, not impossible, but I just, yeah, their approach to life is, is something else. And yeah. it is that it's a wonderful place. You know what question then is coming next? What place of the planet you've not been to? Yeah, I have well, there's a ton of places that I haven't been to. We were actually listing that out. We just got back from, we took the family to Italy and the UK last couple of weeks. And we were kind of thinking about the places that we haven't been to. 
I think top on the list, South Africa and somewhere, you know, probably South Africa and Japan are probably two of the, two of the top places that, that I think I'd, you know, are next on the list for us. They're very different. What, what appeals to, what appeals about them? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, South Africa, I think just the, uh, the country itself is supposed to be beautiful Cape Town, you know, the going on safari there and being able to experience that before, you know, if you can't experience it anymore, which is a, a real possibility, I, I think that'd be an incredible experience. And then you know, Japan for multiple, again, beautiful, beautiful country and incredible culture. And just, you know, I, going back to the, I love Asia and I think it, it'd be a fascinating place to go. Tons of history as well, you know, very dis diverse parts of the country. So I, I think it'd be incredible spot to go. I think the skiing there is also supposed to be pretty good. Never thought of skiing when it comes to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Hardest lesson you've ever had to learn? Ooh, I've learned, I've learned a lot. Hardest lesson I've ever had to learn. You know, I think there's, there's so many, you know, one of the, I took a, at one point in my career, I kind of, I'm doing very well. And there was, I think one, I just got a couple lessons within it. Mm. I think the first one was I, going back to that, you know, I mentioned being kind of authentic and I, I wasn't great at reading the political landscape or playing politics versus just running on merit. And so I took a hard, I took a hard lesson at one point in, in, the, in that regard, we bought a company. I went to run their team. We started bringing some external people in that were out of that particular industry. And, you know, basically I got moved out because somebody else came in that knew that industry and, you know, it wasn't there. It wasn't on merit anymore. It was, you know, I didn't play the, I didn't play the political game with the people that were coming in, in GM roles at that particular time and paid the price for it kind of got moved out of that business unit. And, you know, in hindsight, which, which is interesting as well, because that was a pretty big knockback on the ego at that mm. particular time. Got moved over to another business unit. And ironically enough, the uh, the other business unit was a pure SaaS play. And uh, we grew that thing. That was the fastest growing, most profitable business unit. After five years of getting there, it was a small team and we blew the thing up and was kind of a, you know, basically ended up being a real, you know, pivotal, kind of point in my, uh, in my career of really scaling SaaS. And so it, it all worked out well. And so the two kind of lessons out of that was, you know, ego was really bruised, you know, got, felt like I got knocked back and was kind of, you know, get pushed over somewhere else. But ultimately I think that, you know, one door closes, another one opens. Yeah. The one that opened was far more in incredible journey than the one that closed behind me. And just, you know, being more astute and in tune into the, you know, the political landscapes of organizations, which whether, you know, for good or bad exists in different degrees in different mm. places. I mean, we were scaling incredibly fast in, in that business. Like we grew from 300 people to 3,500 people, you know, 30 million to 500 million. And so, you know, there was an incredible amount of activity happening. And so that, that was, uh, that was, you know, a hard lesson to, to take on. Yeah. But it's a really important insight in that that you those kind of things can happen as have happened to me where you get that knockback and I, and it's a kick in the ego there's no question yeah. yeah but if we just sit back and let the process take care of itself that you said there's often a much better door or certainly yeah. more opportunity through doors that do open and if we recognize that's around the corner and just embrace it it's uh, yeah can be better it's hard at the time i guess but yeah it does work definitely better. hard at the time yeah. What's your own personal definition of success? 
My own personal definition of success. I, you know, I'm driven by a sense of accomplishment. And so, you know, success for me is, is taking on, taking on a project and watching an organization team and individuals transform. I mean, when you get on these, you know, when you get on these growth journeys, which I've been fortunate enough to be like charge me is on a, a very similar trajectory than that active was on before. And so, you know, the watching the how it changes people's, you know, careers and personal lives. And that is just incredible. So that, that just kind of sense of accomplishment and fulfillment of kind of watching that happen. And I talked to a lot of the, you know, the old folks that I used to work with active that are incredible, all in incredible positions right now. They're either CROs or SVPs of these crazy high growth companies. And, you know, when we reminisce and look back, it was some of the learnings that we, we acquired on that journey. And so thinking about the the probability of that happening again to a whole other, you know, massive population of folks and, and teams that we're working with is pretty incredible. And then, you know, trying to be a good human and, you know, making my family like me, I think is, is part of it, which is hard. You know, that's hard. I think, you know, I talked to some of the execs here and, you know, one of, one of the challenges in this, uh, in these types of roles is, you know, sometimes the company gets the best of you, you know, and the family gets, uh, get, gets what's left. So, you know, trying to keep that into perspective and balance is, uh, you know, yeah. hard. When it comes to building organizations, are you an architect or a builder? Builder. And how would you define the difference between the two? Don't you need to put some arch yeah. architectural structure in to build? Well, this, you, no, you do. But for example, some people tend to, they, they come in early and they'll say, we need this. They're the architects. They're defining the building blocks. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. people come in afterwards and it's the operation, how they'll operationalize that, I guess. Yeah, That's yeah, where yeah. I'm coming from. Yeah. No, I'm de definitely an operator. I'm, I like to be the doing, you know, like painting the picture and handing it over to somebody else to do. No, I'm definitely on the, I'm, I'm at my best when, when I'm operating and executing. That's when I'm okay. having fun. All right. A couple of final questions for you, Adam. If you were the Minister for Education or Secretary of State Education and you could make one subject mandatory in what we would call secondary high school, uh, yeah. what would that be? That isn't already mandatory? Yes. Yeah. I think one of the... One of the things that I think there, there's, I think getting a more global perspective on how the world works. And I, I don't know if that's political science or social studies or something like that. I think that, you know, given the, you know, the interconnectivity of the world, I, you know, I think that awareness for me, and then maybe I'm a little biased on that front because I had the luxury of kind of that perspective as a young person, but you know, I think just the, the education, education and awareness of different cultures in the world would probably make the world a better place if people kind of got a grasp on that early. Yeah. Okay. Biggest hope and biggest fear for the future. Biggest hope and biggest fear for the future. Yeah. I, you know, we're, well, I mean, the immediate term is the, you know, the never seeing a, uh, a thing like Ukraine happening again and the world being in a place where something like that can't happen again with that kind of pain and suffering. And that's beyond just the Ukraine, what's happening down in Somalia and, you know, all these different places. That'd be great. The biggest fear is the world maybe 
contracting because globalization like opened up the world to all these different opportunities and a lot of the movements you see this kind of contraction away back from that which i think would be which would be a shame for humanity and you know we talk about that kind of diversity and people kind of shrinking back into you know nationalism's probably a little mm. wrong but that kind of you know that fever t taking over ruining the you know the opportunity that humanity has from you know leveraging and learning and enjoying the diversity of what we have around the world then Okay. Two final questions. Desert Island, you're about to be marooned. You don't know whether you'll ever be rescued or not. You can take one item with you, object, not person. What would it be? I'd probably take a stove. An outdoor okay. cookie stove. Okay. I like it. Very practical. It's quite interesting, actually. <laughs> no, it is. It's, I swear, it's, I'd say 90% of answers to that question are either practical or it's some sort of entertainment. Yeah, I was, but it's interesting I was, the way people swing. It's yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, and of course you you said you're you're the operator, so that's yeah. probably is consistent with that. And then final three, penultimate question. Yeah, is this your house is burning down, and your family are safe? Any pets safe? Your phone and your computer all safe, and you have time to run back in and save one item in your house. What would it be? What would you immediately go for? Well, probably my passports. How practical can you get? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting out of this place. And then final question. When there's a book written about your life, when your time on this planet is done, what would you like the title of it to be? Yeah. I think having fun, what you do, who you do it with and who you do it for. I love it. Adam Thiessen, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Really enjoyed the conversation. It was a lot of fun.